Last time, because this is part two of social psychology, so last time we talked about um, parasocial relationships and interactions, among a couple other things related to that. Um, where do you want to start this time? I ended up researching this thing called the panopticon. Have you heard of it? It sounds familiar in like a half a dozen different contexts, so I don't know which one you're talking about. It is this philosopher's idea for a prison where each cell is visible to the guard tower, but the cells can't see who's in the guard tower where they're looking. So the assumption is you're always being monitored. And this has been the way people have started describing like the algorithm or like social media information getting out, people getting like, you know, being the person of the week to hate on Twitter, um, that kind of thing. And I definitely fell down a hole of that. It was very interesting. Um, and I think it is a really good metaphor. Um, so that was kind of my like dive into a part two, how much farther does this go? What are people saying? Where does where does a thing like that lead people psychologically? Right. So say say you were a prisoner in one of those cells and you were subject to that suspicion of always being monitored. It, that social environment what longitudinal psychological consequences are suspected to be there did you stumble across any i'm certain you have your thoughts on how it goes the thing that i've seen and i'm not sure if i agree with it because i don't know there's obviously never been a study but the idea is that if you're being observed like this for so long and you assume that someone is watching you and judging you then you will begin to take that role on yourself and do that to other people so it's like you're being over policed in these very specific ways so then people will start policing themselves in that specific way i think as a way to kind of get the sight off of them like that's the person you need to pay attention to not me this is a bad person this week i'm doing fine and so it ends up being that finger pointing thing that you see in you know like uh i'm thinking of like <laughs> communism and when people would rat on others because they didn't want to get in trouble themselves so they take the role of informant that inside person um, and obviously this is a lot more, you know, you're not literally going to be punished for the most part for the things you have on social media. The punishment will be other people being mean to you. Um, so the stakes are a little bit lower, but um, so you have seen that. So 
the yeah the effect is that people will start policing themselves in an attempt to avoid getting in trouble or you know they'll take a side uh of the person who is observing yeah my my first thought when you brought that up was like that is the pathology of the totalitarian state mm-hmm. right if if we had to psychoanalyze the psychological archetype of totalitarian state like that is it pathological observation and the bleeding effect that that has um because like and that's why i was looking behind me i was trying to see if i had my copy of and i see it on my desk over there solzhenitsyn's um the gulag archipelago mm-hmm. right and and that's that's the type of psychopathology he describes that he noticed in his countrymen when he returned from world war ii was that the more constant the threat of malevolent censorship the more that the people internalized it and less empathetic they were to other people right yeah which you is de- which go ahead i was going to say you definitely see that effect like with this perspective a lot of the like trends of hating like certain groups of people or certain like person um you know you'll see like everyone hates amber heard this week and then everyone hates johnny depp the next week and everyone we somehow all collectively decide that that's the side we're going to take the opinion that we're doing. And so you'll see articles and, you know, think pieces and videos and stuff trashing and like, Oh, she looks ugly. Oh, she looks fat. You know, when you see a lot with celebrities and because of social media, you do see it with just regular private citizens as well, which is scary. Um, Cause celebrities kind of accept, you know, you're making all that money and all that fame. That's what you give up for it, your privacy. Um, and so it's sort of, part of the job for those people. But if you're just a random person who the internet decides, you know, we're all going to hate you today, then you just have to deal with that until they get bored. Well, let's, let's dive into that psychopharmacologically for a minute, Mm -hmm. because I've been thinking about a concept very similar to that, that I noticed in the hallways of my school that I teach at. So we do know from the psychological literature that um, movement up and down social hierarchies is mediated by the serotonergic system, right? Because as you move up in the social hierarchy, you become more insulated in the group, which makes you safer. That feeling of safety is reflected by higher serotonin levels in response to moving up that social hierarchy, right? It's it's that that, um, biochemical incentivization system for us to do that because it byproduct evolutionary benefit right it gives us that cushion um and right downward movement in the social hierarchy is associated with lower serotonin levels and increased feelings of anxiety and insecurity and all of the psychological response mechanisms to threat what i've noticed and have been paying attention to as I people watch my students in the hallways is, at least with being a teenager, um, well, let let me, let me just explain. I'm not going to use names for the sake of anonymity because they're students, but I had a student of mine that found him, 
I'm going to say found himself in a fight, but he found a fight, right? And he left my classroom and he went to another teacher's classroom, stood outside the door and created the whole stereotypical high school fight scene where he's talking, his combatant is talking, and they're surrounded by the students. The teacher's mm -hmm. trying to get everybody to stop, but they don't care. They're in mob mode right now. And it got me thinking about like, why do people, but especially adolescents, behave that way? And like the light bulb clicked. So physiologically, what is happening in, in those instances? You have typically like with the crowd amping up, getting into the fight situation, you typically have two males. Right. When female aggression gets to the point of being physical, it tends to just be spontaneous and explode. Right. Male aggression tends to be for what men try to display, which is that competence and confidence, right? Evolutionary mating strategies, things like that. So you have two people that under normal circumstances would not behave the way that they're behaving. But even if just two students are making a crowd and watching them, what happens right they both know the right answer to that conflict starts escalating there's consequences to action people are like wired to avoid conflict because in historically if you get into conflict or a fight you break your leg if you're a hunter-gatherer tribe 200,000 years ago you break your leg you're dead you can't keep up you're getting left behind right infection any of those things so we're like kind of wired to avoid it but now people are watching. So what happens? They're faced with two choices. You can either use the rational part of your brain, your frontal and prefrontal cortex, and be like, hey, this is all around a bad idea. Here's all of the logical reasons why. So let's de-escalate conflict resolution and go about our ways and never talk to each other again. But all of their limbic system serotonin regulators are telling them that if they de-escalate, then everybody's going to think they're the bitch, and they move down the social hierarchy, right? Which is associated with lower serotonin levels, depression, anxiety, right? All of those threat responses. So they're placed in a situation where they know the right thing to do, but their body is literally telling them to do the opposite, right? To engage in the fight, to engage in the conflict, to demonstrate, to try and like scramble their way up that social hierarchy so to speak mm -hmm. right does that make sense yeah i think the main thing you were talking about they are logically aware if you ask them they would able be able to tell you in detail what the consequences are for fighting at school specifically but in that moment they are not going to follow that rule that they're aware of and i think some of that, especially in kids, can be attributed to the like impulsiveness, the frontal lobe is not developed. Mm -hmm. They have to act on the most immediate consequence. And the long-term consequences are not going, they have to act on the most immediate one. So in that moment, the immediate consequence is people are going to laugh at me mm -hmm. and, and the long-term consequence. Yeah. So the, any consequence after that is really not important to children because they got to deal with the one that's right in front of them, which, you know, when your brain is developing, I think that's a good way to go about it. Am I going to get hit by this car immediately 
or do I need to wait for my sandwich? You know, it's not a bad way to live, um, but it does cause that rule breaking that we don't expect adults, adults to do. And for the most part, adults do a pretty good job of not doing it, or at least they're weeded out um, pretty early. And, you know, um, that's like the the prison pipeline. You know, we see mm-hmm. those people and they end up in big boy jail for a long time because of those immediate consequences versus the long-term consequences that they are just not able to hold. It doesn't hold a candle to the one that's right in front of them. Well, yeah. And, and some of that is, so two things there, um, that, yeah, the, the high schoolers, adolescents, teenagers, right. We, the psychological literature suggests that the frontal and prefrontal cortices don't finish developing until early to mid twenties formally. Right. Um, so yeah, for all intents and purposes from like seventh grade to like 14th grade, you're just, you're living in your amygdala. That's like, that's all that's going on. You have those immediate threat responses, fight or flight. That's why they're anxious all the time, super high energy, all of those things. Um, but it's just, I always find it fascinating that 99% of the time, if I have a student talk back to me or give me attitude in the classroom, it's because they're surrounded by their peers, mm-hmm. Right. They have to put on that facade to assume that social role as, I mean, like, you know, like we just discussed as an evolutionary threat response system to prevent that immediate consequence being them moving down the social hierarchy and then being less insulated by the social group that they're in, right? Because if you have a choice to, like, sacrifice the insider or the outlier, most groups sacrifice the outlier. Mm-hmm. That's that that that's human and animal nature, right? That's that's not a criticism. That's just an observation. Um, but then, like, so perfect example. I have this one student again, reserving names for anonymity. But in th- this one day, will stick out in my mind. Like, he gave me such intense attitude and backtalk that I had to that I had to literally tell him. And this is like first thing in the morning, first block. I had to literally literally tell him, dude, just sit down and stop talking. There's literally nothing that you can say to change the outcome of this. And literally everything that you say is going to make it worse. So just stop. Right. But then three hours later during lunch, that student comes back and I get him one-on-one and he's respectful and he's asking for help and he's trying to get his work done. And he's, it's, it's the complete opposite side of the coin, Mm -hmm. right? That's, that's the real him. And then the facade that he puts on in front of his peers is vying for status all of those things um right that's just i mean i guess in in the in the terms of like soren kierkegaard right that that's the aesthetic that he's ascribing to to fulfill the immediate human needs of security in the system right however Mm -hmm. defined and so like it's not to like dominate the mic here for a little bit, but just just leads me perfectly into what I was looking at. So when I went kind of the complete opposite direction, Mm -hmm. I looked at social groups and their effect on individual behavior. Um, And there's two primary studies that that I had already known about, but I I freshened up on and read a little bit more on, and that's the um, Cambridge Somerville study and the, um, Robbers Cave study. 
Um, the Robbers Cave study was done in the 50s, I think. That was the one by the, um, I think it's a husband and wife, last name, I think it's Sharif or something like that, where they took the two groups of middle school boys and put them through group dynamic scenarios. So like the first week at camp, they didn't know the existence of any of the groups of boys and they were all randomly assigned right it was it was randomly picked it was homogenous groups and they were all randomly assigned assigned to the different groupings and they let them pick their own names for the groups typical summer camp social cohesion building without awareness that there was another group in the camp mm. right second phase intentional group friction Right, pitting them in contest against each other, letting them have food fights when they would try to share the same cafeteria area, right? Um, in in the camp administrators had to quit agitating because it was escalating so quickly in such a short amount of time. Because like you take these these eleven year olds, these twelve year olds, and you arbitrarily assign them a group, and within like a week they've internalized that idea of the group as created by the members and that becomes like a core to their identity right and i think that goes back to that insulation in groups as a safety mechanism thing um but what's interesting about this is that they they went back in the third phase they um i forget the term that they used but they they essentially did conflict resolution by having superordinate goals and having the two antagonistic groups of young boys work together for a shared end such as like getting food for the day getting the truck started so they could get home type of thing um right ameliorated much of the intergroup conflict that was created just for or the the intergroup conflict that was created merely by virtue of the fact that there was a different group Mm -hmm. right the um cambridge somerville study this one was really interesting it's a longitudinal experimental study of antisocial behavior and criminality in young adolescents um i want to say all males but i i i can't remember correctly but i think i think it was all males um and they looked at two generations so they looked at history of antisocial behavior aggressiveness and criminality in antisocial behavior aggressiveness and criminality in the fathers propensity for alcoholism etc and then analyzed the household behaviors um passiveness of the mother or you know just a whole slew like 20 different points of analyses as far as parental parental behavior in home dynamics so that way the second cohort that they studied were the children of them to see if that pattern of aggression psychopathy and criminality is transmitted intergenerationally um so that's the longitudinal part the experimental part they took the participants and split them into two groups one of them the controlled group which they did nothing but do 
you know, the scans and readings on at various stages in time. And then another group that they had deliberate interventions, everything from literacy coaches to academic interventions to therapy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and a couple of the analyses that I found on that are really, really fascinating because they suggest that the average rate of aggression and criminality in the control group stayed lower than that of the intervention group, which is so counterintuitive, it's ridiculous, right? Um, Definitely bad if your goal was to get some type of funding for yeah, your well, literacy and then, Well, he, here's the thing, too. They, they went back and, like, I think they did like a 45 year longitudinal refresh on these people. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so they came back and, and the original like adolescents are in their fifties now. And I, if I remember correctly, that, that statistical distribution stayed like continued. Mm -hmm. There was a higher percentage of the intervention group that had continued that pattern of aggression, alcoholism, criminality, and ge general antisocial behavior, right? And by antisocial, I don't mean like introvert. I mean like mm -hmm. against society. Well. Yeah, <laughs> doesn't play well with others. Um, then the control group. And I didn't look in to see exactly how they did it. I think it was camps, but it might have been individual. If it was camps, then like, what does that suggest? That suggests that despite the quality of interventions, if you get groups of antisocial people together, they will aggravate and agitate and increase their antisociality. That is a known effect. Right. So much so as to counterweigh any interventions you might do. Right. Now. Which is why prisons don't work. <laughs> That's you exactly can't put what them all in the say, same room. Right? I was going to say one word: prisons. Right. So you take take people in in. It doesn't have to be this way. There's there's known other countries. Now, obviously, like context is key, and it's not going to. Nothing maps perfectly from one context to another, right? So we have to keep that in mind. Um, but other countries like the Dutch, for instance, their criminal rates are so much lower despite how, for lack of a better term, liberal their societies are. Because the focus of the criminal justice system is reform. Mm -hmm. The fact that if someone gets arrested and serves time, they have an 80% chance of being a repeat offender mm -hmm. and getting charged in found guilty again should be pretty damning evidence that our criminal justice system is not geared toward reformation right it's geared towards repeat customers profit yeah um right because it like it, I, i've uh i've never been to prison but there are overlaps between that and military indoctrination, right? So my wife's brother-in-law, it was a trip to find out when he was in prison. He slept on the same mattresses that we had at boot camp. Oh, wow. <laughs> right? Um, and, and, and it's the same kind of thought process, right? It, it's hyper-intense 
adherence to a rigid system at the expense of individuality. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think the becoming, use of punishment is a big factor too. Yeah. Well, well which works to a degree. Right. I because, think they use punishment more in boot camp. Yeah. Because people can form. Right. I mean, to, to some degree, like, that's how people are wired and, and the military's figured that out. And there's a, I mean, there is a, this isn't a critique, at least of the military, because I understand why, because you're joining jobs where there's a very real chance that you're going to find yourself in a position where if your leader says, Hey, we need to go do this. And you give them attitude or say, why should I have to do it? Then people die. Right. So like it, it, it is, it kind of, it's built in for a reason. Um, but it's still a series of programming and deprogramming of institutionalization in the deep, like that's part of the reason why I got out. The military was the right move for me at the right time. And if I had to do things over again, I would like, I met my wife in Germany. It's how I have my family. Like it's how I, it's how I got two degrees and I got my shit together in order to be able to stay together enough to get two degrees back to back. Right. Um, But there's a lot that I've had to de, deprogram and that first summer or for in reality that first 12 to 18 months back was really really tough so people in our criminal justice system that are conditioned the entire time that they're embedded in those institutions to perpetuate in I'm sorry, to participate in and perpetuate antisocial behavior as a means of, well, connecting it with our amygdala talk earlier, as a means of ensuring beneficial immediate consequences. Like the deprogramming from that takes. Kind of could take the rest of your life, depending on how long you serve, you know. Mm-hmm. Fun. Um, well, it- yeah, I think that's a great parallel because the, you know, the change in appearance is a big part of going to prison. Like they take all your earrings out, you're not allowed to wear makeup or, you know, you all get the same haircut and the individual is expected to become part of the group. And I don't, obviously they use punishment in prison. I, they're not, not supposed to, I guess, as far as like, you know, you have to run five miles, you have to, you don't get to yeah, eat no, they, or you're, they, you're getting they up generally at do, um They generally do social isolation. Yeah, so as a form of punishment, right? Go to the It looks hole. different, um, and then, yeah, I guess that would be like negative punishment versus positive punishment. In boot camp, it's positive punishment. Something is being added to your schedule for the most part when you're being punished, and then in prison, negative punishment. They are taking something that you like away as punishment. Society, other people, getting to walk around a room that's bigger than eight feet. Um, So you do see different effects with negative 
and punish like and positive punishments um and different side effects as well but for the most part the effects will be the same the person will conform um but what's interesting is do you see the panopticon effect where you're being observed you could be punished for what you're doing you could be judged you could be put in the out group so people start policing themselves and you know become informants or um you know take the same action that their superior would or their guard would to make sure that you know this person is punished in the expected way for what they did i feel like you don't see that in prison as much no no in fact what you see is further sort of escalations a, of antisocial behavior yeah like a gleeful subversion of the, yeah, the observer yeah, because i mean it's just well and, and to some degree like it's reasonable to suspect that if you take every incentive to be good out of somebody's life other than you get to get out of this bad place 10 years from now right then what incentive do they have to try and be good mm-hmm. right in 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 and there I'm is not... the incentive in boot camp because you can move up yeah well in uh, let's be clear here by good i'm not necessarily making a moral judgment mm-hmm. right i'm making a aligns with what greater society would consider for lack of better terms normal right and to some degree it, it's it's really interesting because right we all have these social conventions that we operate with every single day that allow us to move through the world and through groups effectively and efficiently but none of us realize how deeply enmeshed and embedded we are in them until we see them broken right so i don't know if you've ever seen those videos of people breaking social norms or something like that but it can be like super silly right like <laughs> yeah. just the just the simple idea that it is our social norm and social convention to walk around an obstacle in our way right but say you're walking down the street and you just walk up onto the bench and up and over it right <laughs> and then lo- and then look how people look at you like no one ever said you couldn't <laughs> yeah we just all agreed that this was the better way to do it why i don't know none of us know we just that's just what we do you know mm-hmm. um Which is why I think the social isolation works so well, and by well here, I mean like is efficient in disrupting people significantly enough to be used as a punishment because we are totally embedded in – all I can think of is Shrek right now. Like, you know, ogres are like onions, right? They have layers, right? We're embedded in all of these layers of – not necessarily socially constructed, although some of them are, but social conventions, mm-hmm. right, that may have some real application like 10,000 years ago or whatever, but we haven't evolutionarily evolved out of yet. I'm thinking, too, that 
one of like the tenets of like behavior and changing behavior is you have to teach the person a replacement behavior. And if you don't do that, they will not change their behavior because their need, whatever they're trying to get, whether that's attention, food, get from A to B. And if you don't teach them how to do that appropriately, they didn't learn on their own before. They're not going to learn on their own now. Um, and that might be the reason why teaching a delinquent how to read does not teach them how to stop being a delinquent. How do you decide I am not going to, you know, it's 11, I'm going to stay at home. Making those type of decisions is a different skill than I know how to read, I know how to apply for a job. So you can add these new skills, but that doesn't change the original skill that they don't have, which is making good decisions. Because there's tons of illiterate people who are great. They're great at their job. They never break the law. They're the best friend you could ever have. And that has nothing to do with their ability to read or inability to read. They have learned the skill of adding to society. And that might be another reason why prison is different from boot camp, because as far as I'm aware, they are teaching you the replacement behavior in boot camp. You were doing this before. We expect you to do this. And it's very clear what they want you to do versus in prison. There is no replacement behavior. This is what you're supposed to do. Um, it's just punishment and then put back in without any teaching punishment, put back in without any teaching. Oh, yeah. So you see the repeat, the the transitionary period, the deprogramming like. Was basically non-existent when John got mm -hmm. out. Um like due to the nature of of his unique circumstances he had to do you know probationary period for his license and a couple classes and things like that but there was no mandatory therapy mm -hmm. there was no here's how we do things now right and like he served like a powerpoint years. of Dude, what the world is now he served 15 years <laughs> he went in before the iPhone and came out to smartphones in every single hand. Like when like I spent three years in Germany where mm -hmm. I could see and interact with that technology, but I never invested with it enough to keep up because I knew I was going to be leaving Germany and I didn't want to be geographically pinned down mm -hmm. with the technology I was using, right? I didn't want to buy an iPhone and pay to have it unlocked later or anything like that. Um, so when I came back to the States and I could like watch commercials again, right? Uh -huh. like, get Netflix or like, you know, any of those things that were starting to be become big around, you know, 2010, 2011, like, like seriously take off. Like they'd been mm -hmm. around for a little while. Um, like that wow. was that that was a trip so i can only imagine like it really is like learning everything all over again with zero support whatsoever mm -hmm. like the the only good thing that they did as far as transitionary was um that he had to have an approved place to get released to mm -hmm. which is why we offered our address up for him right um and like like i i know people i know people personally that even even transitioning back from deployment just going from a combat zone to military back home 
is so destabilizing that they couldn't deprogram and they killed themselves right mm-hmm. there's just that they get stuck in that i'm never going to be able to do it i'm never going it's just so overwhelming and sensory overload or the lack thereof right depending on which extreme we go and your that- generation i think is a special case as well because everyone else who joined the military spent some time in wartime not the entire time so having it's you know that 20 year iraq war there are people who joined 20 years ago who did not know not wartime and so that length of time is a little bit unprecedented you know like it, in the past like the 100 years war that's happened before but today i guess not today it's over woo um the how long it lasted that there was no time where you're not at war which I think exacerbates the issue that we're seeing with veterans because they never had a time where they weren't going to get deployed. Well, and here's another thing to think about too. Um, on average, who tends to join the military? Well, there's two groups of people. There's those that are legacy soldiers right either their parents were in the service or their grandparents were in the service or they've had infatuation with being a patriot um and this was their method to get free college and a degree you'd have to go be an infantry officer for six or eight years or something like that right and then you have the majority of people that join kind of like i was where like look bro this is my last ditched effort to try and get my life in gear so i can do something right mm-hmm. I, I joke with people all the time like i joined the army because i needed a job it's right? a resource Every, yeah everything it's, it's well in it's it's fascinating too because there was a guy gal no it was a guy that i went to um he was in my cohort for my master's program um and that's what his thesis was on he was exploring how the British army in colonial times incentivized people through social mobility. Yeah. Right. Which, which is exactly what it is. You could be Mm -hmm. dirt fucking poor, but you can join the military and you get three hots in a cot, get a steady paycheck and you play your cards. Right. And like, you might not be rich, but you won't be dirt poor anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. You go get shot at for 20 years and then you can retire and you can get a paycheck for the rest of your life type thing. Um, And it's that second class of people that I want to focus on really quickly because it ties in with that whole rigidity of the institution and high, fast-paced military service that's characterized roughly the past 20 years, let's say, Mm -hmm. right, 2001 to 2021, if we want to get technical. Um, Those people on average tend to be more antisocial than others, which is why we find ourselves in positions where the we feel like military service is our last option because we've burned bridges everywhere else, mm-hmm. right? Um, here's a neat idea. Something that happens with antisocial people when they get put in that positive punishment, high-paced environment is the rigidity of the system keeps them in check. You, you take those 
generally antisocial people and you put them in a, an extremely rigid, high stakes environment surrounded by immediate consequences, right? So whether that's, you know, physical punishment, PT, push-ups, wall sits, things like that, scaling all the way up to like the most rigid and intense institutions, which would be like combat, right? Where that immediate consequence, like if you do something wrong, someone could die, right? And if by someone could die, best case scenario, it's you. Worst case scenario, someone else dies, and then you have to live with that, which is arguably even worse. Um, <laughs> and I would venture to guess what that tends to do is it tends to offer that unique reward structure with which those generally antisocial people can thrive in, which is why we see an extremely high resurgence of troops coming back from combat environments that are terrible. Right. Like I worked 12 hour days for 14 days in a row. And then I got 24 hours off. And then I worked 12 hour days for 14 days in a row. And then got 48 hours off. So every month I would get three days off total. And the only reason I was capped off at working 12 hours is because I was flight crew for aviation. Mm -hmm. And in order to like, do our job in the safest way possible like the military found out that they have to mandate that you can't be too tired because what happens when you're too fatigued your brain operates similarly to as it does when you're half drunk right mm -hmm. um it, it's it's the same systems that get that get interrupted um now those rules are painted in blood yeah. or written in blood um and so like on top of that you're in an environment especially in the Iraq and Afghanistan situations where, for the most part, most of your quote-unquote enemy are not uniformed soldiers per se, right? Especially in Afghanistan when we have insurgency and the Taliban, et cetera, et cetera, um, right? And I always, always find myself having conversations with this – about this with my students because like I teach the political – science class with the, the civics and government class and so like i like to start with where our founding fathers tended to get most of their ideas about how governments work and what they do etc and those came from um enlightenment thinkers such as thomas hobbes and john locke as the two primary english thinkers and in hobbes's book leviathan that he wrote in the 1650s he talks about what he theorized, right? Or is the uh, the he started all of his philosophical conclusions and political conclusions from this idea that you know if we strip away all man-made institutions, et cetera, et cetera, that what we're left with is what he called the state of nature. There's no rules. There's no boundaries. There's like anybody's free to do anything that they are capable of doing without being overpowered to be stopped. Type of situation. Um. And what he wrote about that, right, he called it the same as a war of everyone against everyone, right? You're in a free-for-all. There's some contemporary critique of the state of nature as an idea, but I think he was pretty correct in that whole, like, 
if it's every if it's proverbially proverbially every man for himself what tends to happen and he claimed that and i'll use modern terminology here instead of his 1650s english speak but he said the the trauma and anxiety of a situation like that is not in the actual fighting it's in all of the time leading up to that fighting that you are insecure and uncertain of whether a fight's going to break out or not and in afghanistan at least for my particular job that's what i found it's not that i mean sure like i i have my my traumatic events and memories i get the war dreams from time to time right this this time of year is fairly difficult for me because the first major aircraft crash I was around in Germany that happened right off of the base that I was stationed on happened at the beginning of February. And then the major aircraft crash we had in Afghanistan that happened right off of the post that I was stationed on in Kandahar happened right at the beginning of March. So I get like that six week overlap where like things get really weird in my dreams. Um, but what I found was when you're landing out in the middle of a field at the edge of a village to go pick up a general or to drop off the Afghanistan general to go talk with the tribal leaders, and there's a local population riding around on their little scooters and dirt bikes, AK-47s on their back because that's what they all do, all dress the same, and you're just having to like, which one is it going to be today? Is it you? Is it you? It's going to be you, right? And that that puts people on edge. And you stay. I mean, I mean, and and we know this. The psychological literature says very clearly that, especially in adolescence, like when people are exposed to chronic fight or flight, mm -hmm. your risk management systems tend to get rewired, and you manage risk in a completely different way than a quote unquote normal person. Mm -hmm. right this is it's, it's what we call superman syndrome when you come back and you survive a tour in afghanistan or iraq and you come home and then you have young soldiers that were like that excelled in combat use their deployment money buy a new motorcycle and kill themselves on the highway going 130 miles an hour right because mm -hmm. they survived getting shot at they survived ieds they can survive speeding a little bit Right. And it just takes one mistake and it's a life changing mistake type of thing. Um, and we know this in school, too. If I have a student that's in the foster care system, like I've had before, if I have a student that is recovering from an addiction or has an addicted family member at home or isn't certain if that address that they live at is going to be the same address they go home to how are they supposed to give a shit about homework mm -hmm. right i mean it's maslow's hierarchy of needs if you're not secure in the bottom of the pyramid how are you ever supposed to be expected to concern yourself with things higher up how are you supposed to be concerned about social relations and like self-actualization when you're not sure if you're going to eat you know i think i would take what you said with the chronic fight or flight and add that you're in a state of fight or flight that is also inactionable for you, where no action you take at that moment would resolve the situation or make it any better or be following orders or doing the right thing. You just have to wait 
until it becomes actionable in some way or the situation is over. And because I'm thinking of like the fight or flight you mentioned with the motorcycle is fun for some people. They love it. It is exciting. It's a rush. You get adrenaline. Um, Being on edge like that is why people play sports, people fly airplanes, people jump off of cliffs for fun. And in those cases, the there is an action that they are taking and that they're able to take where they're standing on the edge of the cliff and they're nervous and it's up to them when they jump and then they have fun because it's happening versus someone who's put on the edge of a cliff and they don't know when they're going to be pushed off. That that would be an instance of trauma related to fight or flight, but there are also good things that happen with fight or flight or fun things, which is why when people go through traumatic events, some people have negative effects and some people don't. And some people seek it out again. If I was on a motorcycle going 130 miles an hour, I would be so traumatized. That is the scariest thing in the world to me. Um, And then some people love it. I was going to say a lot of things, particularly about you trying to kill me on a jet ski going too fast. (laughs) Right. So let's kind of seem counterintuitive. Um, let me, let me just say, I've, I've had the shit beat out of me in a, in a variety of different ways in my life, but like that one beat the shit out of me and it's top five for sure. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> but also too, like that got me thinking that much of the things that make people do, let's call them adverse behavioral patterns. Cause I don't want to moralize it because we're all just people and life is complicated, which makes people complicated. And given any of these situations, the only person that could say that they would respond differently or quote unquote better are those that have a high horse. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, this is something that, that I've, I've found thinking about and again, going back to the combat situations that you have no idea how you as a person are going to react in those until you are in one. Right. Mm -hmm. There's there's just there's no other way we can envision and we can daydream about it all day long. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do this. Um, And in fact, that's how a lot of professional fighters train is they envision how they do the moves and how they're going to respond to things. Right. But they keep that plasticity high enough to where they can respond to those changes and then they train accordingly and they have that live sparring partner or training regimen that keeps them flexible on their toes. Right. Um, so like many of the things that cause people to create adverse patterns of behavior are the very things that are essential for us to have a healthy human experience, mm-hmm. right? We started off this whole discussion talking about prisons and school and delinquency from being in, enmeshed and embedded in these social structures that trigger our neurophysiology in ways that kind of, I don't want to say predetermine, but give a specific, specifically leaned ratio for predictability of behavior. Let's say that. But also at the same time, we can't thrive without them. Right, which is why removal from those is an effective behavior modifying technique right we we are evolved as a species to 
for like you know to put shortly when like we are a social animal there's no way around it right we need our social structures i had this i think it was last semester but i had that that epiphany that it takes a village and by that like the 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 typical conventional meaning of that phrase is that raising children is difficult and personality differences arise because personality differences are a real and measurable thing and it takes a variety of adult personalities for an adolescent to borrow bits and pieces from to ad hoc their own stable identity out of to effectively and efficiently engage with the world and reality and other people. That's the typical meaning. But the more I thought about it, the more I took it a step further that like it takes a village just for one person to survive and be healthy and thrive. Mm -hmm. Right. So like I could pay all my bills and not share them with my wife. But that would require me working, not just teaching, because I don't know if you know this or not, teachers don't get paid a whole lot. Um, so it, you know, it would probably require me working two jobs or working one job overtime. So when am I going to clean my house? When am I going to drop my kids off at school? When am I going to cook dinners? When am I going to prep breakfast? When am I going to pack lunches? Right? Any of those things that have to happen for our family unit and our family structure to, to function, right? Um. And before anybody wants to say, oh, well, you know, get rid of capitalism, you won't have to be a slave to a system to pay the bills. It, it, This is my critique of that socialist response there is that even if we strip away all of these man-made institutions, we have these biological boundaries that I have to meet. If I'm not going to work to earn money, which is a metaphor, uh, a, a battery is a good metaphor for it. It's a battery for labor that I can turn around and I can discharge that stored labor from that battery to somebody else. So they could do labor for me. I mm -hmm. go to work to invest my labor into this artificial currency. So that way, when my roof leaks, I can spend that to have someone else use their labor to fix it for me or to mm -hmm. purchase food from Walmart that's been grown by somebody else and processed and shipped, et cetera, et cetera. Um, even, e even if none of that was the case, like I could feed my family, but I'd be toiling in the field all day long. So when am I going to prep my food? When am I going to clean my like all of the same problems still arise? Yeah, right? having in, 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 yeah, it, it, and it's so like Marx's idea that the division of labor was like the synonymous with Adam and Eve's fall from grace. I think is fundamentally fundamentally incorrect for that for that specific reason is that even for one person to operate efficiently and effectively in the world. It takes a village, mm -hmm. right? We are to our core social creatures and fundamentally operate using some form of division of labor for that because people have different skill sets, different personalities, et cetera, right? That's how you get the whole greater than the sum of its parts. If you're an awesome mechanic and I'm an awesome carpenter and someone else is a doctor, we can form a little commune and we can all trade our skill sets to each other and be hyper productive in ways that none of us could be by ourselves. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So we all have a hundred percent output individually, but we put us together and we're operating at like 350. Right. Um, and I mean, and that, that's just, I, I don't really want to get into the weeds of why that is the case. You know, I mean, evolutionary psychology has a lot to say about that, but like that, that is, that seems to be the biological reality of, a, you know, the human species. Yeah, I was going to add that if the like capitalism labor thing is broken, putting the government in charge of it is not going to solve what it is that we have, which is everything you just mentioned. Well, yeah, um, I mean, yeah, the I same mean, problems even... will still be there no matter yeah. who's in charge. The, well, there's something bigger than the person at the even, top. Even just letting it crumble and not replacing it with anything, those problems still exist. Yeah. Right. It's and, not and, a matter of who is going to do it. Well, in in like we to some degree we know this, right? The I'm not qualified enough to say the same. So I'm going to say similar equations are used to map the distribution of matter in the universe as those that are used to map the distribution of wealth in an economic system. Right? It seems to be, it's called the Pareto principle, where I'm going to misremember this, but I'm going to do my best that the square root of a set is responsible for roughly 75% of the set's output. Oh, right? I so, see. Yeah. Yeah. So, so if, if I have, if I have a hundred music artists, right, like 12 of them are going to re- be responsible for like 75 or, or 85% of the music sales mm-hmm. not because like they're just up and away better but because of just statistical distribution word of mouth right runaway effects things like that um mm-hmm. similarly right look at the economic system in western democracies there is that whole well the one percent owns 90 percent and and i think that's a little over dramatized although it's probably close Right, but Pareto principle, like that's the the statistical distribution of wealth in an economic system over time is that those that are successful continue to be successful and that snowballs up. Same way. Look at look at gravity on the effect of matter in the universe. Right? Planets, big things get bigger. Yeah, big things get bigger and they attract more small things to them to where it all like forms like a nexus, but a black hole if we want to be scientifically accurate, right? That that gravitational effect becomes so intense that that matter collapses in on itself and becomes an inescapable gravitational pull for everything around it over time right and it mm-hmm. continues to grow in that runaway effect um it's the same thing with hell it's the same thing with psychological distributions look at the bell curve mm-hmm. right 80% of the top IQ is going to be in the top 5% of people. 
right? As, as far as like the world's smartest people, talk, something oh. like that, it, right? If we have, if we have to chart out average IQs for people, right? The highest. It's so like I guess that that percentage there would be like relational, but like the top five percent versus mm -hmm. like the bottom five percent. If we look at um, antisocial behavior, I'm certain there's a very uh, um, similar distribution there, right? And and I get why the bell curve is controversial because people don't want to look at it and use it as like a deterministic piece of data. It's not, pre it's not predictive. Yeah, it's not predictive. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just descriptive. That yeah, that doesn't make it any less true, right? Mm -hmm. There is a mathematical average of human experience. There is a mathematical mean, and there's always going to be outliers to those mathematical means. And the closer that you get to the outlier, by mathematical definition, means that it is a smaller percentage of the population that's on those extremes, mm -hmm. right? That's that's how math works. That's how average. The way that. Work. The way that I kind of rationalized this when I used to teach Psych 101 was like you have along the line, along the bell curve, you exist in a certain range and your mm -hmm. actions put you either at the top of your possible range or at the bottom of your possible range or somewhere. So you're, you know, you're going to be where you're going to be, but you can make decisions that will like I could sit down right now and study. And then the next time, and I don't mean study like textbooks, I mean like figure out what the answers are to the IQ test and how to answer them correctly. And then the next time I take an IQ test, it will appear as though I'm incredibly intelligent. Um, but the real thing is I just learned how to answer these very specific questions, um, which sometimes that is the case for people with high IQ. Um, and you put them in any type of job or any type of actual, you know, uh, like natural learning scenario and they can't do it, um, even though their numbers say that they should, but the, yeah, how yeah, I, I wonder, you behave, I wonder if the choices that you make can put you within. If, if that's a correlation, and I don't want to get crucified for this, so this is just the first thought that popped in my head. There's no, I don't know of any scientific literature or data to back this up yet, although I'm interested and I'm going to look into it. I wonder if there's any correlation between like prevalence of autism in the top 1% of IQ'd people for mm -hmm. that exact reason. Part of the reason why they have such a high IQ is because they can hyper-focus on pattern recognition in such a way that within their given niche, they are hyper-efficient. Mm -hmm. They can data dump at any time. Outside of that, they flounder and drown. Right. They they get out. Right. I mean, I mean, we, we hear stories all the time that this extremely brilliant and genius level inventor had these peculiarities where they only ate the same thing at the same time in the same way on the same plate facing the same direction every single day. And if it got off routine, like they would throw shit around their office all day long and it would just like set them in a fury type thing like ring, ring, ring. <laughs> you know, that's a pretty big indicator there. Um, yeah. Didn't know how to tie their shoes. Yeah. Didn't know how to um, reassemble a clock perfectly. <laughs> so, like, I don't know. That's just the, the something that popped in my head there. Also, too, I do want to do an episode later on on comparing um, G-Factor and Gardner's idea of multiple intelligences. Right? General, mm. co general, cogn general cognitive ability. Jeez, if I could speak. Um, as measured by IQ. G factor and then 
multiple intelligences as theorized by Gardner because those two groups like despise each other. <laughs> like I'll have to look into that. <laughs> like like despise each other. Um it, it does kind of which, which tends to happen when you have those like highest level hyper specific, right? Um yeah, where pursuits. like they're throwing things around at the conference and no one can figure out exactly why. Yeah. <laughs> but they know what the other person's wrong about. Um, I was going to tie that back into uh, something you mentioned about the military, specifically recruiting people who skew more antisocial. Um, and the reason they might be doing that is not because those are particularly easy people to corral, um, but because it might make them particularly good at the job that they're expected to do by being able to thrive in that environment that you were talking about, which that thought came from the idea of there's many different ways to be intelligent. Um, and depending on the environment that that person is, they could really excel at what they're expected to do, regardless of what their test said before, just based on their current performance, their current contingencies, the consequences that they're aware of and able to attend to. And then, you know, the amount of practice and all of those things go into it. Yeah, which, and again, I want to do another episode on on that particular topic. But while we're here, let's just play around with it a little bit. Um, I'm on the fence. Because as someone that deals with groups of people, groups of learners every day, mm -hmm. I see that different brains fundamentally working in different ways accomplishing the same task is a very real phenomenon mm -hmm. right um as an armchair psychologist that's what i call myself because i you know it's my hobby um i i read a, enough into it to like have made it through a, a degree program but i haven't done anything with that other than talk with you about things and have crazy thoughts in my head all day long um, but like I do, well, I mean, it's just people want to argue against IQ and IQ test all day long, but like for all intents and purposes, it's the best predictive factor we have of someone's ability to be efficient and productive in the widest range of environments possible, right? That's why it's general cognitive ability. Um, right, I would say now, too. I mean, this might just be particular to my field, but the reason that I see it a lot is for on the lower end classification of intellectually disabled versus not. This person is knew what they were doing and therefore should be tried for their crime. This person should mm -hmm. not because and the difference between that legally is 71. You're not, you know, you didn't know what you were doing. There's no way you could understand 72 you did know, and you're going to get in trouble. Yeah, which um, seems which, really arbitrary, but we have to draw a line somewhere. It's, it's used right? for that. <laughs> yeah, um, and you can argue, you know, if you, you have to bring in the, you could get someone 72 IQ off <laughs> based on their disability, but um, there is a line drawn in the sand. Um, yeah, but which, it is, which, uh, again, it's like I said, the law, so it changes every yeah. day. <laughs> well, and I mean, it's, it, you know, like I said, it seems to be arbitrary, but there has to be one somewhere, right? You know, so um, that's why I see IQ used or why it's persisted so long, even though, you know, we well, don't do it before you get into and, school or anything. And it's important to keep in mind, too, that 
if we don't want to have the conversation as a society that there is a variation in general cognitive ability among the population because there is mm-hmm. then how are we ever supposed to and i don't want to use the term engineer because i don't want to be considered a social engineer because i strongly disagree with social engineering because none of us are smart enough to have any clue on intended or unintended consequences of interventions that we might make right um mm-hmm. But, you know, if if we're not even able to have that conversation that there is variation in intelligence and general cognitive ability among the population, then how are we ever supposed to be supportive of those at the lower end? Exactly, yeah. Right? People need something to do. People need a reason to get up in the morning. If we if we don't have one, then we don't. And, and by that, I'm not saying, like, if we don't have a reason, we don't have a reason. I'm saying if we don't have a reason to get out of bed, people don't get out of bed. Right? Mm-hmm. How many stories do you hear of people that were – saved from taking their own life because they had to go deliver meals for wheels or were saved from taking their own life because that because they had to get up and feed their cat or just whatever Mm -hmm. as banal as it might be it got them out of bed and it literally saved their life right we need a reason to get out of bed and if we are underserving a massive portion of our population like shame on us um this is where i think you and i can be like there is a huge proportion of people, especially in America, that are very disenchanted with, you know, labor and where they're at. And those people, in my opinion, are in industries that build nothing, help no one, uh, are completely pointless and just feed back into themselves. And I'm thinking of, um, you know, like doing something on the computer all day. You do graphic design. And you complain all day about your rights and all of this and your art and all of that. And I think that a problem with those type of jobs are that you're not contributing to the health and well-being of someone else when you go and do your job and you feel unfulfilled, not because the system is long or your company is terrible or your boss deserves, you know, jail or you've been wronged in some way or, you know, that we need socialism, it's because you aren't contributing to society in a meaningful way. And that sounds very harsh. Graphic designers, you're doing a great job. Um, And doing art is an important way to contribute to society. Um, But hopefully that made sense without calling out graphic designers. No, no, no. Freeloaders on society. I I totally get it because two things. First of all, the people that are stable in those jobs, I would venture to guess, have a healthy enough cognitive architecture with which to recognize how art is essential as a service to humanity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in a variety of different fashions, because like art's a very broad topic. Um, I think when also- you start mindlessly churning out TikTok ads with your graphics for Taco Bell every day, you are going yeah. to hate life Well, and, because and, it doesn't and- do anything. That's the thing, because that for two reasons, a, um, you probably don't have a healthy enough cognitive architecture to be a bulwark against being so removed from the effects of the product that you're creating. Mm -hmm. Right. And secondly, that. And I think you hit the nail on the head here. Service. Right. We know the psychological literature suggests that 
people that have heightened levels of anxiety and depression use the terms I and me more often than those that don't. People that are diagnosed with major depressive disorder tend to overproportionately use I and me, and those that are quote-unquote normal or at least not diagnosed with major depressive disorder tend to use us and we more often, right? And we also know that those disorders, anxiety, major depressive disorder, if we want to get down to cluster B personality disorders, I think an argument can be made for that too. Um, right. One of the behavioral mannerisms that's associated with that with like is like a hyper self-consciousness. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so what 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 is what does that suggest? And I don't want to put the cart before the horse here, but that suggests that there is a very real connection with how often you think about yourself and your overall mental health. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying they're causal. They could be just correlative. But at the very least, if they're correlative, then who knows? If you're always thinking about others, your chance of being diagnosed with major depressive disorder probably drops correlatively corollarily as well whatever the correct adjectival form of correlative is um right so and this is this is something i tell my students a lot too that the most meaningful jobs tend to pay the least yeah because the value is in the service and in the meaning you are fulfilled you are happy you are of service to others right um there are truly days where I would have gone hungry if the person at Taco Bell did not put my crunch wrap on the grill for me because I wasn't gonna cook that day. And those jobs are considered, you know, meaningless, easy, unimportant. And those people are the ones who kept me alive for the next six hours well, by yeah, feeding and, me. In 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 that case. What saves those is you have direct human interaction. Yeah. Right. Um, and and I always I always think of this guy and I always forget his name. Um, mom and dad would remember, but his he went to our church and he had Down syndrome. You talk about Danny. And he worked at Arby's. Mm-hmm. Right. And he was just a freaking joy to be around at work because he had something mm-hmm. to do. And he loved dealing with people, and he knew he was good at it, and he was a little slow, and he was a little loud, but he was the happiest, most fulfilled person that you could hope to meet. He loved going to work every day. It gave him his routine, and he was never independent. He always lived at home, right? Independent living, well, probably nowadays we could probably put together a behavioral plan and and interventions and supports to, like, keep that as as a probable reality. But like late nineties, he definitely two- had to carve that. He carved yeah. that himself. Yeah, late nineties or early two thousands. Like you know, he relied on his parents to get him to work and back. And he's an adult at this point, right? He's already graduated. But he like those are the types of people that I'm talking about that were underserving mm-hmm. by not being able to have an honest conversation. That not everybody's going to be Einstein. Not everybody's going to be CEO. Not everybody has the general cognitive ability to be upper management and that's okay that's if they were not a criticism we would would starve exactly 
right? And and there's there's no reason to look down upon um, service jobs or entry level jobs or anything like that, um, because they're they're essential. Right? If you go to Taco Bell and expect to be able to order food, then you have to value the people who are going to make that food. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I was going to say something else too. Can we tie it back into our original topic? <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, um, because mm-hmm. I was, I, I feel like I was going to make a couple different points comparing G factor and multiple intelligences, and we kind of just went down a rabbit hole there, and it, it was, it was a good one. I'm glad we did, but I'm trying to retrace my steps. Or find a stepping stone to get us back to groups. Um, it makes me wonder how much our unique quote unquote multiple intelligences, because Gardner described eight of them, are merely a reflection of personal interests. And by focusing on our personal interests, those unique areas of our personality disposition get, I mean, just like going to the gym, if all you do is go to the gym and do squats, your arms aren't going to get stronger, right? Your legs Mm -hmm. will. Um, Now, here's the question, again, not not to make assumptions and to give, give the devil his due. We also have to wonder if our personal interests as defined by our personality disposition are what they are because we're already good at those things or are like are we interested in them because we found we have a talent there or do we have a talent there because we're interested in those things and that bolsters our efficiency in that task Mm -hmm. and i don't know the answer to that question and I don't know if there's a study that would give us, I'm, I'm certain like there's at this point now millions of psychological studies, right? Obviously some higher quality than others, right? Um, but I don't, if any of our listeners happens to have a study or literature to point us to, to have ammunition for our discussion when we do cover this, sometime in future episodes uh please let us know i would think a good example of this is like a in sports certain countries are good at certain sports and that is because they like them (laughs) they go to the games they value these skills and so they're built up in a lot of people. I'm thinking like Russian figure skaters are very good. American basketball players are very good. Australian cricket players are very good. Not because those particular groups of people have an innate ability of being good at no, because basketball. The, because the cultural carrots and sticks suggest investment of talents into that specific niche, right? Yeah, Regardless if they would have been a fabulous neurosurgeon, they want to be a basketball player and they're, you know, six, nine or whatever. Which is, this is how we tie it back into our original topic of 
social groups and social psychology is that we adopt the values and characteristics of the social environments that we are embedded in. Like we mentioned earlier, partly as a self-defense mechanism, right? Because it helps us move up the social hierarchy, which gives us that insulation and the security. And therefore the release in serotonin, which makes us feel good about ourselves because we're now safe and secure and not anxious, et cetera, et cetera. Um, because well just like you said those cultures tend to have those mechanisms rewarding and incentive and incentivizing a certain behavioral skill set over others which therefore mm -hmm. incentivizes the members of those cultures as groups to engage in those behaviors more which gets them better at them right or at least prioritizes yeah. them over others um which is, is again is, is necessary but also at the same time and this is kind of a big jump here but when i was reading about the robber's cave robber's cove whatever it is um psychological study um the sharif I think they're husband and wife researchers mm -hmm. that a lot of what I came across when I was looking for contemporary literature about that study, extremism and terrorist groups, right? We find yeah. ourselves in need of, in, in psychophysiological need of having a group to be enmeshed in right because like without it we clinically like literally go clinically insane that's why you have the stereotype of the hermit that goes off into the woods to live by himself and like is batshit crazy because that is what happens to people without these social support structures that we have right part of how we validate that experiences that we are experiencing are real is like convergence theory of truth where by voicing those ideas of those experiences to other people and having Venn diagram overlap with those other people, then we can be reasonably assured that at least to some degree, something was happening mutual to everybody. And therefore we're not like lunatics. Right. Um, and when those cultural carrots and sticks for those groups incentivize rigid adherence to an ideological framework, then that conditions people to act in ways that they otherwise wouldn't, right? That most people would consider irrational. We were watching the first episode of season three of The Mandalorian earlier this evening, me and, and William and Orion, my two youngest. And first of all, like, this is the way I'm on board with it. I love it. Um, <laughs> right. But like we, we got towards the end in, in not to give away spoilers or anything, but like we're in or part of what the show displays is that range of people adhering to a culture that has, shall we say, fundamentalists, right? 
then those fundamentalists tend to strictly adhere to dogmatic codes and creeds as the way not to be deviated from right if you deviate from them you have the harshest of punishments which is expulsion from the group right mm -hmm. and like i had that little light bulb moment because this is what i've been thinking about the past couple of days in preparation for this that like what an apt metaphor for the human experience right mm -hmm. that a sometimes those the grit that it takes to be confident enough in the group mechanisms that you're adhering to, assuming that they align healthily with the reality of both, you know, the biological and psychological reality of people and our relation to reality itself, right? Um, but also, too, to the varied range of human experience that any group can tend towards fundamentalist and therefore extremist or radical positions just by virtue of being a group right mm -hmm. we can't live with them we can't live without them right it's it's a, it's a damned if you do damned if you don't type of thing I think there's something even more subtle than expulsion from the group being the consequence for any deviation. I think what th that will resonate is something that other people will do. And my goal for this is that it's a little bit of self-reflection for everyone listening. Have I done this? Will I do this again? I need to be careful when I do this. Is the person who is different or you don't agree with or they are doing something that is immoral according to your group standards are not told you can't come back they are still invited back or um you know you still say hi to them um at school or at church or at the grocery store or wherever because that aligns with the morals of your group as well and then what you do is casually and very often socially punish them for what they're doing until they either get back in line or decide to leave because the punishment is too much which you'll see this in like Scientology is a good example where if you try to leave everyone is mean to you and you either leave or you come back and do what you're expected to do, give money, go pass out pamphlets on the street, um, go invest in like random warehouses to put a Scientology sticker on and then never visit again. And if you try to leave or do anything different or go to like a physician or a normal doctor, you will, people will be mean to you. And that is the real punishment. They're not told, you know, you can't come back, you're kicked out of psychology or you know, Scientology, you're kicked out of the Catholic church, you're kicked out of our social group. You're just mean to them until they get back in line or they leave on their own. And then morally, you can sit down and say, well, they left on their own. That's not my fault. Um, or, you know, they didn't do what I said. So it's their fault that this is happening. So we, as people, 
can do this and also never take the side of the bad guy because we still invite them. They did this to themselves. It's up to them, the balls in their court, which hopefully, you know, this is something that we need to do. And but we need to be aware that we're doing it and a little tactful with it, because if you just start doing it to anyone who is different, then that's when, you know, you're just mindlessly marginalizing people, punishing people for being different, for having this haircut, for not going with this, you know, specific tradition that we do. And so, yeah, the end result is expulsion from the group, but I think that that would be a little bit more rare than the person having to leave on their own because of the social punishment that they're getting, sometimes even physical punishment that they're getting. Well, it it makes me think of like cult grooming and cult programming and indoctrination. It's not any different than... (laughs) Well, the, the, the only thing that would make it different than what you described, as far as I could tell, is that the cult programming and indoctrination would include that plus a sense of the cult group removing or isolating that individual from any external support structures to make the feeling of willingly leaving consequences be damned not an option right so your only choice is to conform again yeah right and then you mix that with the gaslighting of see how good it is when you just play along right Mm -hmm. um Right, because you know, if we don't have that, if it is just people being like conformist to each other or expecting conformity to each other, then you know, you're just describing the high school mean girls, right? On Wednesdays, we wear pink. Mm-hmm. If you don't wear pink, you're going to get ostracized, type thing. You can't sit with us at lunch until you toe the line again. Um, yeah, it's 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 fun. Right. So like, well, you know, that's, that's the tricky thing because like these things are necessary, Mm -hmm. but just like any disposition, they can be pathologized. Right. So like I was having a conversation with somebody earlier today about the, the line between in-group preference and out-group discrimination is sometimes very narrow and very fuzzy. Mm -hmm. Right. In-group preference is perfectly acceptable and okay. That's how we operate. That's how families work, right? That's what separates. Yes, I do value my family more than my neighbors, not because I dislike my neighbors, but because I recognize that it is nobody's job to value my family more than anybody else than like than, than me. It is only my job. It is my family, right? It's my duty and responsibility. Um and I and I, I bear no ill will against my neighbors, right? Um, the the metaphor I use is that if I'm having a barbecue for the neighborhood, I'm going to make sure my family eats first, not because I don't want to share with my neighbors, but because I'm going to feed my family first because that's my job. And then leftovers I will like share with my neighbors as one would expect. Um, whereas you know that outgroup discrimination is the pathologized version of that. Mm-hmm. Right, where if you're an outlier for the in-group, then all it takes is a misstep and you become deliberately ostracized. Right. I think like the if I was part of a friend group who just said, you know, she is so ugly, her haircut sucks, she can't come hang out with us anymore. 
I would immediately identify that as a red flag and say, you know, these people are a little bit toxic. They're going to do this to me. Mm -hmm. I'm aware that this is bad. That's not what happens. What happens is the next time she comes, she gets a snide remark about her hair. Um, They create a group chat without her and, you know, say mean things, take pictures of it, make comparisons with like, you know, a chinchilla or something ugly. Chinchillas are cute. I can't think of it. They're adorable. Yeah. Um, You know, and they're mean to her until she gets a better haircut or decides I can't take this anymore. I'm not going to hang out with them. And that is less easy to identify something that is wrong and something that I should avoid because it's something that is, you know, not immediately evil. Um, And it's something that you could join in in as well. And many people do. And this is why like bullying and having a common enemy is so common because it's very rarely, you know, calling someone ugly to their face and you can't come back here. We hate you. Um, that would be too easy. We would know that that's well, wrong and we should do that. And I mean, to, to give the devil his due um, and, and maybe I'll put this idea out there and you can give me your thoughts on it and then we'll wrap up mm-hmm. um, to give the devil his due to some degree. Like this is an accurate observation that thinkers like Karl Marx and the postmodernist thinkers and the critical thinkers like Theodore Adorno, Max Horkheimer. Um, man, what are the postmodernists? Michel Foucault, kind of, um, Jean Baudrillard, and oh man, the poststructuralist, the dude that did a whole bunch of stuff with language. I forget his name. Um, it'll come to me later when we're done and I'm going to be like, oh, that's what it was, but it doesn't matter. What matters is all of these people that most of their ideas I I disagree with. I don't disagree with their recognition that these are problems in human nature because Mm -hmm. they are. Because some people do act that way and there always will be some people that do act, act that way. What I tend to agree, disagree with with these with these thinkers is their prescription for how to fix that, right? Because generally, what I see that it entails is a at best willful ignorance of the rest of human nature that that will always be an issue, right? Combined with the hyper focusing of well everybody operates in groups and those oper- those groups are just premised based solely on power so it only makes sense to like if we want to make things better to take the least powerful group and force our way to script to recenter from the margins right because at the center of the structures where the power lies right in that way those that have been underprivileged and marginalized will know how to better fix society and that'll lead us into a, a healthier place blah 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 whatever but that, that's what it's based solely on is that accurate observation that group dynamics are always a thing. They are always at play. And we are all always just one bad decision or one relaxed day away from falling victim to that. Right. Or or at least inadvertently participating in, let's put it that way. Um, yeah. Which is is true. But there's good there too, and this is this is where they don't give the devil his due. In that, like we've already said, like groups are essential. We absolutely need them, and then, like we have 
contemporary researchers like um, Franz DeWall studies primates, right? And his observations of, of chimps and their social structures are that, yes, it is possible that a large chimp can viciously fight and scramble his way to the top to be alpha male. But that social hierarchy tends to be unstable and devolves relatively quickly, because while that single bigger chimp might be able to dominate and overpower any other chimp in the troop, all it takes is two or three smaller chimps banding together and they can tear them limb from limb, right? Think um, French Revolution. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, they will know, eat cake. Yeah. Um Whereas what, what what DeWall noticed was that the social hierarchies that tended to last the longest and be the most stable were not those predicated on power, but predicated on something like a benign reciprocity. So it's not always the largest chimp that's at the top of the pyramid. Oftentimes, it's a slightly smaller chimp that spends more time social grooming spends more time sharing food, spends more time reinvesting in that social network, right? Um, and that creates a more stable structure that tends to last longer, right? Which... We could do a whole episode on how being nice is how you win the social game in real life and being critical and mean and inflammatory is how you win the game on social media and get a lot of interaction and retweets and all that and how those things are tearing society apart because well, no one's well, being nice typically like that's what pro-social and anti-social behavior is pro-social is recognizing that i don't just want to play this one game with you i want to play an iteration of games over the span of our life mm -hmm. right um, whereas antisocial behavior would be more of other games be damned, I'm going to win this one. Yeah. Right? Um, and that is yeah. how the algorithms, what tweets get a lot of attention, what Instagrams get followed a lot is that one game that one day and the next week it's a different flavor and the next week it's a different flavor. And the people who do that and don't pay attention long term am I a nice person at the end of the day? Am I doing things that add to society? That never comes into question because the feedback they're getting is, you know, I won this game <laughs> and the next one and the next one without a look at the bigger picture of how being mean to people on the internet for fun is extremely damaging, both personally for that person and for all of us, having to watch them do it, having to be the victim of it, having to just see again and again, I hate Trump, I hate Biden, I hate this person, this is the next person I hate, this news anchor, and there's nothing in the middle, there's nothing nice that gets any type of attention because the algorithm doesn't want us to see those things. Well, yeah, part of it is the algorithm, part of it is negativity bias, which has historically and evolutionarily kept us alive by by having a disposition to pay attention to negatives more than positives, but that's a completely different episode too. Um, mm -hmm. I'll wrap up with this, that because we're on the topic of social groups and iterable games, that Jacques Pengsepp, I think he's Hungarian, maybe he's an Austrian psychologist, um, 
did a study with juvenile rats and where he would pair up the rats in play matches, right? Or play pairs, whatever the term would be. Um, but he didn't just do it once. He did it iteratively, right? And what he noticed was it only took like a, a 10% size disparity for the larger rat to be able to pin the smaller rat every single time. Mm -hmm. But if you repeated the process, what he found was that after the first one or two bouts of play, play would not occur until the smaller rat initiated it. Because the larger rat recognized that I can win and I want to continue playing, not just fight. Mm -hmm. And so like, if I go and I force him to play with me, that's not play, that's fight, right? Um, also too, so like, like that's particularly interesting, right? That's that whole, you see the group of high schoolers that are normally bullies to everybody deliberately pick like the handicapped kid first to be on their basketball team at gym class right mm -hmm. you got to let the little man have his day sometime um second big thing that he noticed was that if the big rat didn't let the small rat win at least 30 percent of the time the small rat would not initiate play mm -hmm. right which is ties in exactly with what you're saying there and if we couple that back with um the evidence that social hierarchies are not solely predicated on power except when they're deviants right when they're a deviation from a stable hierarchy um what that suggests is two pretty damning pieces of evidence against the we'll call it the radical left's pantheon of heroes and their ideologies that no, our institutions and hierarchies are not solely predicated on power and exclusion of outgroups, although they can be when they deviate from stable hierarchies. And the whole point is not to use those power plays to force yourself to win this game because it's not about winning this game. It's about playing and having fun in, quote unquote, winning a sum total of games across a long time span, right? So method matters just as much as endpoint, if that makes sense. It does. And the hard part is getting people to stop playing that game long enough to reflect on the sum total of their actions being positive or negative. We got to get out of the amygdala and into the prefrontal cortex. Yeah. And the reason <laughs> that I am in this, like I got bullied off of TikTok twice and I have not downloaded it again for nothing. You? For nothing. I posted a... You're like one of the softest spoken <laughs> non-confrontational people that I know, unless unless it comes to sports, in which case you're hyper-competitive, but that's a particular niche that you're allowed to be hyper-competitive in. I posted a video of my ring and I did this to like show the angles of it. And people bullied me relentlessly for having a ring that was too big. And like that was somehow morally wrong. And then also the fact that I had a ring meant that I was privileged, meant that I and I am stupid because it didn't fit. And 
I'm privileged and I'm also wrong about this until I just had to delete it about nothing. And so that was really when I was like, oh, this is a really weird phenomenon. These people will jump on anything and anybody as part of the game because the people who comment funny things on my video got a lot of likes from other people who scrolled down to the comments to see what people were saying. Yeah. And then they're rewarded for that behavior. So, um, yeah, nothing. I didn't even say there was a political, just like, Hey, look, this ring is from the great depression and there's a fun fact about it. And, um, so that was the reason I'm personally invested in people unplugging for a little bit, (laughs) because when it, when the, the, you know, spotlight turns on you is really the only time people are going to snap out of it and say, you know, this is a problem that needs to change. Which is so weird. Like I I get, I get the whole, because I mean, I have one too. That whole mentality of you're just buying into these social conventions because you've been conditioned to buy into these social conventions, which is why you get a job so you can make a salary so you can spend some of that salary on this social convention, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to go out on a limb here and suggest that most of the people making those snide comments were either nothing but trolls deliberately trying to say the most heinous thing possible to get a like or a laugh out of it. Mm-hmm. Or they were projecting their inability to participate in that onto you, right? Because what is the wedding ring? It's a marker of stability, right? The fact that I wear a wedding ring and I've been married to the same person for 10 years suggests that I can play the long game. I can play the iterations of games with one person that for whatever reason, after 10 years, still manages to like me and find me attractive despite all of my fundamental flaws because I'm only a human and we are all fundamentally flawed in some capacity, right? And when some people see other people succeeding in those long-term games, reminds them that they're not. So what do they do? The only thing they have left, try to succeed in the short-term game of putting you down. Yeah, I agree with that. And then there was also some normal ass, genuine, just people doing it who when you go to their TikTok and see what videos they've posted or they liked, completely normal, just also participating in this thing. And it's true that the ringleaders are deliberately malicious people who are trying to get this oh, but pun in, people pun see intended. that yeah people um people see that that gets a lot of likes and whether or not they're aware of it start playing that same game and the ringleaders are the ones who get them because that video only got like 100k views which is not even viral in the world of virality today so i wouldn't even say like oh i went tiktok viral and got bullied off barely anyone saw it um so i say 100k it was really like 70 like not you know very few people saw it and i still got this amount and so then you imagine the people who are getting like you know 60,000 views or 60 million views 100 million views 60,000 views a day yeah like the type of backlash that so you know 
I guess well, that, what I'm trying to say is normal people are doing this too. And this entire episode is an explanation as to why. So all it takes is those handful of people that have those antisocial dispositions to put other people down because they intuit that they project their insecurities of not being able to play the the iterable games. Mm-hmm. And ordinary people through group dynamics and serotonergic reward incentive structures participate as a demonstration of moving up or down the social hierarchy even though it's 100 artificial mm-hmm. in a digital space with no reality behind it whatsoever except for the consequences on people's psyche on the other end of the black mirror right mm-hmm. um but because it is and going back to the postmodernist right i invoke them a lot because i i, I done an unhealthy amount of study on them um and that like there's truth there sean baudrillard was one of those postmodernist postmodernist with the marxist bent and you know, he called it hyper reality where the simulacra of our reality become more real than the objects that they are simulating mm-hmm. and that's exactly what social media is it mimics reality in such a way that we interact with it as if it is real and we're losing touch with being able to interact with original reality anymore. It's also the ultimate panopticon of people trying to put the dogs on other people so that it does not fall on them. Yeah, because what better way to cast the stone? What better way to prevent you from being ratioed than to be the one that's always getting other people ratioed? Yeah. Right? And call, you just got ratioed. I didn't participate in the ratioing. I'm just calling it out. And feeling like they're doing a net good without taking a step back. Yeah. Um, and borderline pathologizing it without recognizing that they're participating in a psychopathology. Not at all. Um, Which is, you know, it's a process. So learning education is key. (laughs) Well, and and not just that, the the humility to be self-aware. Well, we can't expect people to automatically know how to interact with social media in today's day and age. Because we're learning together. But we can expect people to shoulder the burden of, as Socrates would say, know thyself, right? To be able to be nice. Well, to, to have the wherewithal to recognize what triggers you and to manage that. And then mm-hmm. how what you might do triggers other people and to be aware and respectful of that right? It's not necessarily up to me to modify my behaviors because it triggers you. Your triggers are your own responsibility. But if I want to play multiple iterations of games with you, I'm going to at least consider it, mm-hmm. right? That's <laughs> it's, it's common courtesy, right? That That is the literal definition of common courtesy. So it, it takes a <laughs> yeah. balance of the two, right? Yeah. All right. Well, we went, we went deep in this one. Um, yeah. That's an episode and a half. 
we'll see if maybe we want to do a social psychology part three and then we can dip into um play and games i think that would be a good topic yeah i love talking about play um playing games and then um iq versus multiple intelligences i'm also passionate about that yeah Yeah. we'll keep those keep those on the docket and we'll see i mean maybe those will be multi-parters as well yeah uh most likely See you next time. Huzzah.